The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. I'm Mara Cunningham, a program officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. With me today is Alana Yuretsky, an assistant professor of global health, anthropology, and international affairs at George Washington University, who is also a fellow in the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. Ilana has recently published her first book, <coughs> Occupational Hazards, Sex, Business, and HIV in Post-Mail China, with Stanford University Press. Today we'll be discussing her research on the links between relationship-building business practices and public health epidemics in contemporary China. Ilana, welcome to the NCOSCR China podcast. Thank you. Uh, to begin, why don't you give our listeners the the very brief 60-second explanation of what your book is about and the story that you tell in it. So the book is about HIV. So it has HIV in the, in the title, but it's not necessarily about HIV per se. Um, it's really, it's, it's definitely not an epidemiologic account of HIV. It's really about the networking rituals that have been used to fuel China's economy for the past 35 years, and how those networking rituals, including banqueting and smoking and drinking and commercial sex, how those instigated the HIV epidemic in China. How did you get interested in this topic? Interesting question. (laughs) Um, So in the late 90s, I was a history student. Uh, I I was a history PhD student at Harvard, and decided that I wanted to become an anthropology student. And it was right around the time that uh, the HIV epidemic, the the global HIV pandemic, was really hitting the news. And I I was at Harvard at the time, and Peter Piot, a man named Peter Piot, who was then the executive director of uh, the UN's AIDS organization, so UNAIDS, he came to Harvard to give a talk about the global HIV pandemic, and I said, okay. I heard about it in the news, didn't know much about it, um, and went to hear his talk, thought it was an interesting topic, and he had one slide about China. Just one. One slide. <laughs> this was 1999 or maybe this, maybe early 2000. Um, and I said, I didn't know China had an HIV epidemic, but you know what? Maybe that's what I'd like to do. Um, and so that, that, that set me off. Mm-hmm. And then I, I left my history program and I went into an anthropology PhD program. Uh, and right about the time when I started my, my anthropology PhD program, news hit the front page of the New York Times about this HIV epidemic that had been instigated in Hunan mm-hmm. through the sale of blood plasma. And that... I, I, I said to myself, okay, this is, this is it. That's, that's what I need to do. And then it's all been history from there. <laughs> right. So, I mean, one of the things you talk about in the book is about how these businessmen and government cadres who have contracted HIV and other sexually transmitted diseases are not the typical population mm. in China that you would expect. So we often hear about injection drug users, people who have sold their blood and been injected with... Um, contaminated plasma, um, men who have sex with men, but 
the people who you're talking about in the book don't fall into any of those categories. So how did you realize that this was a population who should be studied? So, so I went to China looking for looking for a topic, um, and I originally went to Henan, mm-hmm. uh, where the, this blood plasma epidemic, you know, was was centered. Um, I went I went to Jumadian, which is the prefecture where everything was really going on. I had a I had a classmate who came from Jumadian, and he said to me, he said, "Come home with me. Um, I'll introduce you to my all my all my friends from high school." They're the top-level government officials in, in Jumadian. I'll introduce you to them. And so I did. I went home with him, and I thought, great, this is my inn. Uh, and they said to him, they said, we welcome your friend to come here and do any research she wants. She can ask us any questions she wants. Just tell her she can't ask us anything but AIDS. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> End of research there. End of research. Start over. Right. Um, and I went back to Beijing and I met a guy named Billy Stewart, who at the time was the um, the HIV advisor for DFID, the, the British, the, the UK Department for International Development. And I said to him, what do you have to suggest to me? And he said to me, he said, there's a hospital downtown, a hospital on the second ring road called the Yohan Hospital. And they the only AIDS ward in China. Why don't you go talk to them? And so I did. It wasn't easy to get in. It took me three weeks of phone calls and visits. And I eventually got into the ward, and I met the head nurse. And she said to me, she said, you know, yeah, you know, most of our patients here, they're gay men, but I run a hotline. And almost every person who calls, that's a national hotline, she said to me, she said, almost every person who calls into that hotline is a businessman or a government official who's had sex with a prostitute and has now heard about HIV and freaks out when they hear about HIV. They have no idea whether they think, they think okay, maybe I have this disease, but I don't know, and I don't want to go get tested. I don't want to go to my, what was at that time, the anti-epidemic station. I don't want to go to the anti-epidemic station and get tested because they find out that I have this disease, I'll lose my job. So they'd call her on the phone and they'd say, can you tell me if I have this disease? And she'd say, no. You need a blood test. She said to me, she said, we know nothing about these men. We know nothing about why they're engaging in these behaviors, but we need to know about them. She said to me, can you go out and do some research about them? And so and that, 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 that was what turned me on to this topic. Right. So you started talking to this nurse in Beijing, but most of your field work that you talk about in the book takes place in this small border city in Yunnan province called Ray Li. Mm-hmm. Um, so why, why is really important in your story and in the history of HIV and AIDS in China? So I had a topic. I had to find a place to, to do this work. Henan was clearly out of the picture. Right. Um, and most of China at that time was out of the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, China had not admitted to its HIV epidemic yet. But Yunnan, Yunnan had a long history of HIV already at that time because it saw the first cases of HIV in the country in 1989, and there, they already had, you know, HIV prevention programs. There was, there was an AIDS industry down there, and so I headed down to Yunnan, um, and I, I knew that there, there, there was one other ethnographic account of HIV that had been written about China before me. There was a woman named Sandra Hyde, who teaches at McGill, she's an anthropologist at McGill. She wrote a book uh, called, um, 
I can't remember the name of it. Eating, eating Spring Rice. She wrote a book called Eating Spring Rice. And it was about HIV and sex work based in Shishonbana, which mm-hmm. is in southern Yunnan, close to the, the, the border with Laos. Um, and, you know, I knew about her account, and I knew what she had done, and so I said to myself, okay, I'll head down to Yunnan. Uh, and there was, there was, there were HIV programs down there, and there was a Save the Children UK office, and they were just getting started with an HIV prevention project in Rayleigh. And so I went to them, and I said, I'd like to do some HIV research, but I really, I, I need, I need a way to get in. Um, and they said, they said, we'll, we'll, we'll make the introductions for you. And so they did. They made the intro- their their partner in Ray Lee was the local Bureau of Health, and they made the introduction for me to the local Bureau of Health, and they made and they ran a clinic down there, an, an HIV clinic, um, and they made the introduction for me to the person who ran the HIV clinic there, and that was that was what I needed. They, I basically went in under their relationship, um, and and. It also happened to be the place where the AIDS epidemic started in China. And so it was the perfect place to do HIV research mm-hmm. um, because they were there had been projects there. They were familiar with the epidemic. Uh, and so they weren't afraid to talk about it. And interestingly enough, when Sandra Hyde first went to do her research in 1996, she knew about the epidemic in Rayleigh. And she went to, you know, the same officials in Kunming that I had to go to to get permission to go down to Rayleigh, mm-hmm. and they said to her, no, we don't want you going there. Why don't you go to Shishuangbanan instead? And there had not been one recorded case of HIV in Shishuangbanan at that point. Uh, so, you know, a difference of seven years. Um, I went in 2003. A difference of seven years, and Yunnan was opening up, and they were fine with me going down there. No problems. No problems at all. They welcomed me in with open arms. The, the the local Bureau of Health welcomed me in with open arms. The mayor, the party secretary of the city, the party secretary of the prov- of the of the prefecture all opened me in with open arms. Knew exactly what I was doing mm-hmm. and had absolutely no problems with it. That's really interesting. Um, because you mentioned the the public health office. So, of course, China has this, you know, enormous public health bureaucracy that starts all the way up to the central government and goes down to the local levels. Um, but as you talk about in the book, there are limitations on what the public health bureaucracy can do to fight against the epidemic that you're talking about of HIV and other STIs among, you know, government officials and businessmen. So what are what are some of the, the obstacles to the public health bureau taking action? Well, I mean, there are a couple of obstacles. One is that, you know, the public the public health bureau in China has absolutely no power to do anything. Um, but the other more fundamental obstacle is that no one can admit that a problem like this exists amongst government officials. Um, you know, and no one knows how big the pro- how big the epidemic of HIV or STIs, sexually transmitted infections, are amongst government officials because admitting that there's an epidemic amongst government officials is also an admittance that government officials are having illicit relations with sex workers or right someone outside of their family. Mm-hmm. Um, and that goes against the very fabric of party policy 
and threatens the legitimacy of the party. And so this is something that is recognized implicitly, but never talked about in public. And there are rumors that there are government officials in Junanhai who are HIV positive or who have died of HIV. And I tell a story at the end of the book Mm -hmm. about um, a former uh, vice governor of Yunnan province who died of, uh, you know, as a result of suicide, uh, but was HIV positive. And, you know, that would have never come out had he not attempted suicide and gone to the hospital and undergone a routine HIV test. No one talks about, you know, no one talks about the government officials who who may be HIV positive who are, or who are HIV positive. They're always, not always, they're, they're frequently mentioned in passing, mm-hmm. you know, as, oh, there are men who go out and do things that, you know, we can't talk about. Um, it is implicitly recognized, but it can't, it can't be acknowledged. It can't be publicly acknowledged. And that creates a huge challenge in addressing this problem amongst government officials. Right. So are they able to seek treatment or they do it sort of under the table or just not at all? I would say, I'm, again, I don't think anyone knows. Right. Um, I would say that, yes, they're able to seek treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's to- totally in secret. Right. You know, and, there, and, there, and there's one person who I talk about in the book who was a minor, who was a very, very low-level government official. Uh, And what happened when he was discovered to be HIV positive is that he was dismissed from his job. And I Mm -hmm. think that happens quite frequently. Um, And then, you know, as private citizens, they're allowed, they they can go and seek treatment if they have the money. Right. Um, So I wanted to ask you about the the research process for this book, because you're an American woman, and you're going to talk with these men down in Yunnan and asking them about their drinking and smoking and having sex with commercial sex workers. How were you able to do that? How were you able to build trust with them and get them to tell you these stories that I'm guessing they wouldn't necessarily want their wives to know about or the public to know about? So it was it, it was a very interesting process. Like I said, um, the people in Rayleigh welcomed me in with open arms, which I don't think would have happened in many places in China. Um, and I think they they welcomed me in for several reasons. One was because right they're far away from the emperor. Mm-hmm. Um, things go on there that you know it's like Las Vegas, right? What happens right. here stays here, and 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 they didn't really mind me knowing. I didn't feel that threatened by it. Um, I had also you know I I'd gone in again under the introduction of, of an organization, a foreign organization, mm-hmm. but an organization that they had implicit trust in. Um, I also, and I, and I talk about this in the book, when I arrived there, I arrived with my husband, who was going to stay with me throughout my field work, um, but had to go back to work. Uh, <laughs> and he worked for Harvard at the time, mm-hmm. and he came with a Harvard business card, and man, did that open up doors. He couldn't speak a word of Chinese, but that business card opened up doors. You know, knowing that there was an American there from Harvard, they wanted to meet this person. And, you know, and and I came with him. I was the one who could speak Chinese. Okay. Uh, and, then, and, and then, you know, I was an American um, who could speak Chinese and who was staying. So they'd seen, they'd seen lots of Americans come through um, because they'd had so many HIV projects. Mm-hmm. There were people who would come through for, 
you know, two or three days and couldn't speak Chinese. They always came through with interpreters. Right. I was an American who could speak to who they could talk to and who was staying for over a year. And they, they, wanted, they wanted to get to know me. They wanted to learn from me. They wanted to know, you know, what it was like in the United States. Um, unlike a lot of places that we know of in China these days, Rayleigh is not open. It's still very, very closed. It's extremely remote. Um, they've not seen the outside. And they were very, very interested. And so they just, yeah, they, they're, they're extremely friendly people, and they just welcomed me in. You just mentioned um, other international public health workers or NGO workers. So what kind of role do they play down there as compared to the local Bureau of Public Health? They came in with technical advice. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, uh, Save the Children UK had a very large uh, HIV prevention and intervention project when I, when I went down there. And they opened up this STI and H HIV prevention clinic. Uh, they weren't there all the time. Their offices were based in Kunming. They, they had central offices in, um, in Beijing, and then they had an office in Kunming. Uh, they had a Chinese program officer who ran the project and an Australian program officer who ran the project who would come down periodically. Um, the Australian would actually stay for a couple of weeks at a time. She could not speak Chinese. And then they had local people who they hired to run the project. The official head of the project uh, was, the, was the head of the local Bureau of Health. And then they hired a doctor to run the clinic. And they hired a couple of nurses to work with the doctor in the clinic, and there were some staff mm -hmm. um, who helped to run the project, do trainings, do outreach with sex workers and people in the um, in the city. Um, but you know, it was a partnership; they worked together. Um, although, the, you know, the rules of the game were really determined by the foreign organization. Mm -hmm. As I was reading the, your book. Um, I was wondering to what extent this is a China story. You know, you talk a lot about cultural cultural factors and this this culture of like drinking and smoking and uh, the the yingcho or the sort of relationship building practices, and that all of that is certainly very China centered and China specific. But the sort of broader idea of um, businessmen and government officials being a high-risk population for STIs and HIV that's not being recognized and addressed. Do you think that that could be a pattern that we see in other places as well? I think the general population is probably a pattern that can be that we could see in other places. Certainly, in a place like Vietnam, mm -hmm. right? If you if if you look at practices like this, you know the first thing people ask you is, well, what about Japan, right? This isn't unique to China. What about Japan? What about Korea? Right. They go out drinking after work, and they have these big banquets and exactly. things like that, too, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so those practices certainly exist in, in Japan and Korea, although I would argue that um, the cultural motivations are different. Um, Vietnam. The same thing has happened in Vietnam, probably for the same cultural reasons, uh, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a socialist economy undergoing market reforms. Mm -hmm. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, if you look at if you look at HIV epidemics in Africa, certain African countries, right? Again, we still look at the marginalized populations. We look at the sex workers. Um, we look at you know the the gay populations. Uh, but you know, 
and I, I and I don't do research in these areas, but I do hear people say to me that, yeah, it's the it's the wealthy men, mm-hmm. right? It's the wealthy men who are buying the sex, um, and they're passing on the HIV in, in, infection. But no, we don't we don't pay attention, right? We don't pay attention to them in our narrative, in our epidemic narratives. We're we're still paying attention to the vulnerable, marginalized populations. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I, I, I do think that this is a a trope that we could find in other epidemics. Again, the, the cultural scenario is probably very different, but the fact that we're neglecting certain populations that don't fit into this risk profile, mm-hmm. um, I think could, could certainly stand in other contexts. So you fin- you finished research for this book just before Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign really took off. And the campaign has significantly curtailed the ability of government officials and businessmen to engage in the types of relationship-building practices that you describe. So do you expect to see a subsequent effect on public health? Do you think that that will make these men healthier in the long run? So my hunch is yes. Um, and I haven't been able to get in to do a lot of research about this yet, but mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like to. Um, but, you know, anecdotally, what I hear from people is that there are men who are posting thing to their, things to their WeChat feeds and their Weibo feeds that their blood pressure is going down. Their love handles are disappearing. <laughs> um, they can actually, like, go home and cook. Um there's another guy, there's an anthropologist named John Osberg at the University of Rochester, wrote a book called Anxious Wealth, about a very very similar topic. Um, and he, he bases his research in Chengdu. When he goes back to Chengdu these days, his, inform, his informants are also telling him that they're home cooking these days. So I think that, you know, if we were to go out and collect data on a systematic level, that we may we may see Xi Jinping's anti-corruption policies having a certain effect on public health at a certain level. Mm-hmm. Um, the other th- the other thing that I that I hear anecdotally also is that if we go below say the you know municipal level into smaller you know lo- lower municipal levels. Um, these practices have not been weeded out yet, right? And people are still having to drink and eat and smoke. Uh, and so it's probably a process, mm-hmm. right? Like anything, it's probably a process. I mean, the anti-corruption policies are, are they're happening pretty quickly. Right, but they're only about two years old exactly. at the most. Yes. Um, so, you know, and still no one no one knows what's going to happen. I mean, it, look, it, it looks like they're... It looks like they're holding for longer than we expected them to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they stay on this, right, if he, if he stays on this trend, a lot of things are going to happen. Right. Um, and, you know, some good things and some bad things. Um, the, the unintended consequences could be quite good from a public health perspective. Right. So in the long run, maybe this book will turn out to be a work of history after all. Maybe it will be, yes. <laughs> Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today, but I want to thank Alana for sharing occupational hazards with the listeners of the NCUSCR China podcast. Thank you.